Welcome to The Food Group, a podcast aimed at people who love to know a little more about the food that they're eating, and I don't mean what's in it, but more about how the dish they've chosen came to be, came to even exist at all. What drove someone to put the ingredients together in the first place and what made others copy them and keep them alive for sometimes centuries, never changing it or abandoning it. And before we start, a disclaimer. These tales are just that. Tales. They are meant to entertain and be retold with even more wit and invention. Their foothold in any kind of fact is pure coincidence, although, where possible, I have tried to back them up with legitimate evidence or endorsement. However, it is very likely that none of what you are about to hear ever happened. The first story we have for you is not for a recipe as such, but more of a food item. It's a classic example of how it sometimes takes the greatest minds in existence to create something so simple that you may be tempted to dismiss it as too easy. The dish in question is Melba toast. Never heard of it? Well, it's that crunchy, curly bit of toast that you get in fancy hotels or in packets at the supermarket which holds that scoop of cream cheese or pate so well. It's also been the backbone of many a calorie-controlled diet, and you'd be forgiven for thinking of it as not being a food at all and having been designed by some evil scientist with the sole aim of making mealtimes a torturous, bare affair devoid of calories, but in fact, its creator was one of culinary history's most colourful and influential figures. His name was Georges-Auguste Escoffier. Escoffier is someone you'll get to know quite well in these podcasts. We mentioned him briefly last week as a well-known champion of the flaming crepe Suzette, but let's give him a little bit of a backstory. He was born in October 1846 in the town of Villeneuve-Loubet in the south of France. His entry into the world of cookery came at the tender age of 12, when he started an apprenticeship at his uncle's restaurant in nearby Nice. From there, he travelled to Paris and from there to London to work at various hotels, but most famously at the Savoy. Unlike many French chefs, he never once worked in a royal kitchen or for any kind of aristocracy. He was the first great chef of his age not to have done so, and this may have contributed to his pioneering edge. He was also a great believer in nutrition and making food that had nutritional value, and he hated with a passion the old ways of classical French cooking. Escoffier's impact on kitchen life is immeasurable, and the way he worked, revolutionary. He created what's called the brigade system of cooking in professional kitchens. This involves chefs working in a hierarchy, with different people each having very specific responsibilities. It's a system that's still in use today. As if this wasn't enough, he also worked hard at increasing the hygiene standards of professional kitchens too, something that we take for granted today, but back in the 19th century was far from important. But don't just take my word for it, here's our friend and top chef, Daniel Galmiche, to give you some perspective. So Escoffier, for French people or French chef, is a legend, he's a master, he's uh, somebody you bow to, even, obviously, you never met him, but, but his name is... It's just um, um, huge, actually. <laughs> That's all I can say. For different reasons, for what he invented, for his ethos, for his um, discipline in the kitchen, for his organization, for his uh, uh, advanced technique, for his uh, thought about the future within the kitchen. I mean, Escoffier is just like, like Carême, like uh, Urbain Dubois, like all these masters. Overall, though, it was Escoffier's belief that it was imperative to keep it simple that was to forge a new path for the culinary arts and make him a hugely bright light in the restaurant scene. And like moths to the flame, he attracted an ever-growing fan base of well-known and well-heeled visitors. 
We pick up our story in 1897. Escoffier is in his 50s and was already a star. His neat hair, elegant moustache and crisp white jacket was iconic and became the aspiring look of every great chef for decades to come. This was the start of celebrity culture. The stars of the stage and the airwaves and later the brand new moving image were to flock to his restaurant in the hope of seeing the great man and to be seen themselves, of course. Public image was important for this crowd and they knew the value of being in the right place, eating the right food. Nowadays, we live in an age of celebrity with people from all walks of life catapulted into the public eye through television, social media and magazines. We're bombarded with images of famous people doing everything from walking their dogs to eating their lunch. But back then, in 1897, things were a little different. When a star rocked up in your town or city, it was big. Big news. Traffic-stopping kind of news. And at the end of the 19th century, stars didn't come much bigger than Australian operatic singer Dame Nellie Melba. In 1897, Melba was touring the world, cashing in on her global fame with a non-stop global tour. When she was in London, there was only one place she wanted to be, the Great Savoy Hotel and at the lunch tables of the man who by this time had become known as the Chef of Kings and the King of Chefs, Monsieur Escoffier, of course. She and Escoffier had become quite good friends during her previous visits and they enjoyed each other's company, but on this particular trip, Dame Nelly was feeling a little unwell. The opera singer was well known for living an indulgent life. Her husband was a hellraiser and she'd had numerous affairs, most notably with the Duc d'Orléans, pretender to the French throne. She battled with her weight throughout her career, but also with other appetites, the kind that get you into trouble. History doesn't recall what she was suffering from on this trip, but her usually hearty hunger was failing her and she had retired to her room from where she sent down a simple request for a round of toast. Although when you ask the greatest chef in London to pop some toast in for you, it's very likely he may over-deliver. Yes, he probably did, actually, uh, Mr Escoffier, because that was his, the way he was working and everything had to be fantastic. So he created this Melbatos uh, uh, for her. And generally on Melbatos, we serve a pate in France, for example, <clears throat> or it's an accompaniment of soup. So uh, not only the toast is, uh, is uh, grilled on both sides, but for him, it was not good enough because it was too thick. So he recut it by half and re-grilled it. So you, you kind of got a really small wafer, but very crispy, very tasty. And with this grill flavor, it's almost like a barbecue modern style of thing, you know, and and, and serve it with soup because she was not, uh, not well at the time. So no pate was required for that, but ser ser serve with soup, which is really elegant, crispy toast, which she uh, become to love and wanted that so often. But that was typical Escoffier, was it? Thank you, Daniel. There's a small school of thought who argue that the toast was created by mistake in those great kitchens at the Savoy, but I think you'll agree that too much thought and process involved in this simple recipe for that to have happened. Anyway, so now this new type of toast exists. It becomes Nellie's go-to thing, the one item she always has. You know the sort. Nellie Melba wasn't the only image-obsessed person in the world, of course, and slowly but surely word spread of this incredible toast that was just like toast, but half the size and half the calories. By the 1920s, weight control was big business. The idea of taking yourself away from temptation and staying in a place focused on your health and diet, looked after by doctors and physicians, was first seen back in 1876 when John Kellogg created his sanatorium in Battle Creek, Michigan. But 50 years later, there were many to choose from. The Mayo Medical Centre in Rochester was one such place and was well known for its use of innovative ideas and techniques all aimed at reducing weight. 
their 18-day diet program was immensely popular and helped many, including the actress Ethel Barrymore. Barrymore was the first lady of American theatre, and yes, she is related to Drew Barrymore. She's her great aunt, I think. Her success was well documented in magazines, and soon word spread of the diet and the backbone of it. Yep, you guessed it, Melba Toast. Recipes were published, along with daily food plans, and soon entrepreneurial types had packaged the breads up, got them into supermarkets to help the ever-growing number of dieters. The market leader was Mrs Sophie Cubison, an innovator in the cracker business and worth a podcast all of her own, but in 1929, when the clinic launched its 18-day diet plan using her toast, it multiplied her business threefold, cementing her place in food history forever. Mrs. Cubberson still trade today, and not just on Melba Toast, but Sophie herself sadly passed away at a ripe old age of 92, quite a few years back. Well, I think this all goes to show that every food has a story, and even the smallest, simplest things that you may take for granted can have a life more exciting and extraordinary than you'd ever expect. You're listening to the Food Group Podcast, where we will attempt to unravel the stories behind some of the most famous dishes in existence today. But there's also some great stories to uncover surrounding the wine that we drink with them. We're attempting to draw together the ultimate bucket list of wines, a seller of the gods, if you like, basically an imaginary collection of what we think are the greatest wines that ever existed or even still exist. A rack full of bottles that most people will never even see, let alone open and try. But here's hoping. Before we unveil our latest entry, let's get the story of a more accessible wine that we can all indulge in, and we also heartily suggest you do. This time it's the unusual sounding Chakoli. You'll be forgiven for never having heard of it. It's spelt T-X-A-K-O-L-I, and it's from the Basque region of Spain. Once again, here's wine expert Ollie Smith with all you need to know about it. Chacoli. It's the most refreshing white wine in the world. Anyone can get their hands on it these days. It is thankfully in supermarkets, but you can find amazing examples from your independent wine shops. But the reason it's on this show and we're talking about it is because James first had it when we were together in San Sebastian uh, with Jose Pizarro. Uh, Jose, incredibly, I think it was at dawn, suddenly announced, we must have Chacoli! And uh, off we went. I'm not sure we were in the best condition to enjoy this very, very sharp, zesty, low-alcohol white wine. It's dazzling. Shards of Granny Smith's apple doesn't come close. It's Neptune's fist of lightning conjured with a citrus spell right darting straight into your eye. It's so sharp. It's so electrifying. And that is thanks partly to the Atlantic climate, but also to the Hondurabi Zuri grape. It's a very mysterious grape. Even the origin of this grape, we're not entirely sure. It might be identical to the American hybrid Noah. Uh, It might be Courbou Blanc. Nobody really is entirely sure. But what they are sure of is that Chacoli, served chilled, is lowish in alcohol and it is awesome with pinchos. That's that local tapas they serve there. But why you need to taste it is because you need refreshment, you need to change gear, it will sharpen you, and it will also be incredible with anything from the sea. Shellfish, anchovies, you name it. This is the stuff that feels like quenching the very soul of your ocean spirit. So that's something for everyone to try if you get the chance. Next is a wine that very few of us will ever get near to, let alone the chance to taste. Over these podcasts, we're slowly building up a wine rack full of what we believe are the greatest wines that have ever been produced by man. A collection of bottles so incredible that Bacchus, the Roman god of wine himself, would be lucky to have them in his cellar. So here's Ollie again with what he thinks should go into the next slot. It has to be 
Domain de la Romani Conti 1990, which is also known as DRC. It's a Grand Cru monopole. That means that the winery and the land is owned by one person. So that's unusual. That's interesting. Uh, we're in the Cote de Nuit in France, in Burgundy. It's only four and a bit acres, but it is an amazing place to visit for a number of reasons because it's not fenced off. Uh, it's humble. You kind of see it and then you think, oh, it's just a patch of land. It's a bit of dirt, isn't it? Uh, but then you see that there's just a you know gradual trickle of people working their way around the outskirts of it, looking at it, taking pictures of it like it's a holy relic, like people on Abbey Road, uh, you know, taking their snapshot of the Beatles. And you suddenly realise this is a dimension shift. This place that was finessed through Roman hands, through the hands of monks, has been finessed over hundreds and hundreds of years to make the world's most expensive and prized Pinot Noir. And really, the reason it's in my rack of the gods, yes, 1990 was an incredible year. I've tasted it, it's wonderful. But it's about Aubert de Vilaine, the guy behind it. He is the brain, the mind, the soul, really, of that vineyard. He has become one with that place. And I had the privilege of getting a kind of 20-minute interview with him, which turned into an entire afternoon and evening of unparalleled joy. And he took me into his cellar. We had a blind tasting, all the rest. But he is the inspiration for me and the place. And I think it is emblematic of skill, empathy, farming, time, history, the future, what you want to achieve in your life. Many hands have built that dream, but only one set of hands at the moment is authoring and tending that land and shepherding it through to its great destiny. So DRC 1990, uh, if you want to taste something silky, as complex as any album, any novel, any life experience, any lovemaking extravaganza you may have embarked on. This wine does deliver that, but it is also the beginning of another journey about a person and their place. So with these wines, these wines of, of the gods, a lot of them have a lot of history and a lot of um, pedigree to them already. Do you think if you were to try them now blind, not knowing their history or place or, or purpose and, and these great names behind them, they would still have that standout flavour or do you think you're tasting something that has so much expectation that you are you're almost wanting it to be fantastic no question that there's a lot of altitude from where they come from and why they are the way they are but what you will taste when you taste them you'll taste intensity you'll get lots of flavour you'll get complexity which is the different layers you'll get long lasting flavour you may not be wowed in the way you think. So for me, whenever I've tasted the best wines in the world, one of the things that I would say in, they all have in common is they are unremarkable in this sense. They're unremarkable because they are very, very balanced. They're very, very perfect. So it's not about an amazing kind of wow moment. It's more about, oh, this is a different level of tasting, a different level of feeling. They convey so much. But because they're harmonious, it may not be in the way you think. It may not be about flavour alone. It's a journey and it does have that textural moment. It does have a moment when literally the wine, you become the wine, you digest that. You are through that bottle taking on the nutrients, the place, the liquid, the light, the skill, the history, all of that is seeping into you. So yes, the story counts, but also it is about them genuinely delivering something a bit more than just a tasty glass of wine. Thanks, Ollie. And we'll be putting the whole list up on our website, thefoodgrouppodcast.com. And if you would like to add one or suggest one, do let us know either there or through our Facebook page. And don't forget to subscribe to these podcasts so you never miss an episode either. Our next story is for one of my favourite dishes, beef carpaccio. And it starts in one of the most beautiful cities on earth, Venice. 
Venice is one hell of a place. Once one of the six most powerful cities in the world, it sits in a lagoon in the Adriatic Sea with no roads but plenty of palaces. It's the home of some of the most beautiful artefacts on the planet and has always been a magnet to the rich and glamorous as well as the talented. Many artists took Venice as their home and one of its most famous sons was the painter Vittori Carpaccio. Carpaccio painted doges and noblemen. He painted the Venetian lagoon in all its glory and countless religious scenes, but he was never to try the raw beef dish named in his honour. He was painting the city back in the 16th century, but it was his vivid use of colour that was to inspire not a chef, but a barman. Venice had and still has many bars, but the most notorious of them must be Harry's Bar. Opening its doors in 1931, Harry's Bar was run by Giuseppe Cipriani and funded by a wealthy former customer of his at the Hotel Europa around the corner named Harry Pickering, hence the name. Legend has it that Cipriani lent Harry 10,000 lira when his parents cut his allowance on discovering he spent all his time in bars. Harry disappeared and Cipriani feared his money was lost when suddenly Harry returned gave back the money five times over, 50,000 lira, with which Cipriani opened his bar. He was a master craftsman in the world of drinks and a fine barman. The bar was a success from the very start. Off the beaten track and in the corner of an old rope factory, its clientele soon spread the word that this was the place to drink. People came for aperitivo but stayed until closing and the seats were full of everyone from kings to poets to actors and most famously, Ernest Hemingway. But it was none of these that got Cipriani on his road to food history. The Countess Amalia Nani Montenegro was a regular in the bar around the time of Hemingway, and one early evening around 1950, she came to Giuseppe with a dilemma. Her doctor had advised her to eat more red meat. Prone to faintness and suffering from suspected anemia, it was a diagnosis she was not happy with. She hated red meat and found it always so tough to digest. Cipriani was undeterred, and on hearing of her ailment, he got his chef to prepare very fine slices of a chilled beef fillet he had ready for his steaks. They rolled them so thin you could see the pattern on the plate through them. A little unappetising at first sight, he added a simple mustard dressing, vibrant in both appearance and flavour, and the dish was done. The beef was tender enough to be palatable, and the mustard pokey enough to mask any nerves the counters may have had about the rawness of the dish. But you don't need me to tell you, here's Italian chef and TV presenter Joe Hurd to explain the dish's potency in more detail. Carpaccio is something which has really been a staple of at least Western Italian restaurant menus for the last probably 30 years. Um, simply put, it's the fillet cut of beef, a centre cut, which is trimmed of all the excess fat and sinew. So it's a very kind of smooth, they take off the silver skin, so it's very easy and palatable to kind of eat and and taste. I mean, I've worked in restaurants where several different kind of variations on how this dish is prepared from seeing it frozen in the freezer and then sliced very, very thinly on a ham slicer or a salami slicer. So you get wafer thin paper style kind of like carpaccio. Problem with this is you get a lot of ice crystals in, water content, and I think the flavour gets compromised somewhat. The other way you could do it is actually just to chill it slightly so then you can cut it really, really fine. Essentially, though, it is raw meat. Um, and so when you sometimes see slightly bastardised versions of it where maybe the exterior is sealed, it might be tasty, but that is not carpaccio. But um, usually the meat is paired up with quite big flavours, umami flavours. Hazan proposes in her book that you do it with raw porcini, and it's something which Carluccio used to do when he first opened his Neal Street restaurant. You get um, Jamie Oliver pairing it up with things like 
Parmesan shavings, olive oil, rocket. Giorgio Locatelli very famously at Locanda Locatelli used to pair it with pureed broccoli. Again, these quite big flavours going with the meat. There's lots of different pairings with it and it's always seemed to have been seen as quite a luxurious dish. I mean, obviously created in the Cipriani bar, it does have that element of grandeur and gilding the lily with capers and parmesans and rockets and fine olive oils from Tuscany. It does have a luxurious kind of quality to it. Did I mention Joe was Italian? Via Hull, but most definitely Italian. Well, Cipriani's beef carpaccio clearly worked on the Countess and soon others were requesting a colourful plate of protein-rich goodness. The vibrant displays of food flying out of the kitchen reminded Cipriani of the colour palette of one of Carpaccio's paintings, copies of which adorned the walls of the bar. Cipriani was a big art lover and his walls were full of Venetian scenes from many of the great painters from Messina to Bellini. Yes, Bellini does sound familiar, but that's a whole different story. It's time to close our cookbook of food stories and once again draw a veil over another edition of The Food Group. If you've enjoyed the content in this podcast, then you can read more in the book Who Put the Beef in Wellington by me, James Winter, available very reasonably via Amazon and in most good bookshops and plenty of bad ones. And we have more culinary tales in our next podcast. Do let us know what you think via our Facebook page, The Food Group, or our website, thefoodgrouppodcast.com, which also has more detailed information about the show, and you can contact us if you're interested in sponsoring us. And make sure you hit subscribe in your podcast app so you never miss an episode. Bye for now. The Food Group is a CM Audio production.